the end of that evangelistic meeting, typically what he'll do is he'll give lots of reasons why it's worth it for you to become a Christian. You know, um, so you'll get to go to heaven and it's your best life now. Right. And there's a community of supportive people around you who will help you along your journey. And of course, you know, there's the whole forgiveness of sins bit. And that's what you'll hear. Lots of reasons why it's worth it to become a Christian. But I doubt that if you listen to him, I doubt that one of the reasons given by him is that you'll get to suffer. I mean, can you imagine? Give your life to Jesus today and we promise you'll suffer for it. No, I mean, suffering is not typically a motivation for us because we don't like it. We don't enjoy it. But even though we don't like it, ironically... What we see in this passage before us is that suffering is considered to be one of the blessings of being a Christian. In fact, Peter says it's reason to rejoice. And many people find it a bit odd that Peter speaks about painful trials and then he turns around and he says, rejoice in them. There's something incongruous about that, seemingly. How can he say that? I mean, isn't that just a straight contradiction? Rejoice in suffering? Well, certainly in the modern age where pleasure and comfort are maximized, this is a very uneasy thought for us. But the fact is, the Bible considers suffering to be an integral part of all Christian discipleship. So we need to have a theology for suffering. And there's multiple reasons for that. And here's a couple. One is, unless we understand God's purposes behind suffering... Unless we understand that, we'll be tempted to think that God is not good or that he's not there or that he's left us. Or, or maybe we'll even go so far as to say God doesn't even exist. There are all kinds of temptations that come our way in the midst of suffering. So it's crucial that we begin to understand why suffering exists and what some of God's intentions are behind suffering. The truth is, suffering, ironically, can actually enhance our relationship with God uh, as we express our dependence on him. Now, that may sound inconsistent to what I just said, but it's not. The fact is, how you respond to suffering makes all the difference here. How we respond to suffering. Suffering can either drive you away from God or it can actually drive you ever more deeply into fellowship with God. The issue is how we respond to suffering. And and the pressing question for us this morning is this. How are we going to respond to suffering when it comes? Because suffering has great potential to bring growth in godliness and blessing into our life. But if it's going to do that, then we need to understand some key things about suffering. In John Piper's book, Desiring God, he has this, this great line. And he says this. He says, I have never heard anyone say that the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard strong saints say, every significant advance I ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep in him have come through suffering. That's great. And it's the testimony of suffering Christians all over the world. You ask them, that's where God began to change them. So what are we going to do when suffering comes? Will we let it undermine our confidence in God? 
is God fair and, and is he worthy of my trust and, and has God forsaken me and, and does God really love me like he used to? Or are we going to let it drive us ever more deeply into fellowship with him? You know, that choice is ours. And how we respond depends in large measure on our understanding of what God is up to in the midst of suffering. So I have one major premise or thesis this morning that I want to present to you in this morning's message. And it's this. Listen carefully. Suffering is not a sign of God's absence. Suffering is a sign of his purifying presence. Suffering is not a sign of God's absence. It is a sign of his purifying presence. And we must understand that if we're going to suffer well. So here's what Peter does in in your text. Look there. Verses 12 through 19. He gives us the essential things we need to know about suffering. These are the essential, the high points. Now, admittedly, Peter isn't going to tell us everything that we need to know about suffering. Um, I mean, for example, he doesn't go into the different types of suffering. But what Peter does do is he spends time on the causes of suffering and some of God's purposes behind it, which is immensely helpful for us. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that Peter writes so much about suffering. You think about it. We've talked about suffering a number of times in this first Peter series. It was that Peter keeps coming back and back to this issue of suffering. We shouldn't be surprised about that. It is the theme of the book. And I think one of the reasons why Peter is so passionate about this theme is this is the very issue he struggled with the most. You think about that. It was Peter who was tempted to deny Jesus. It was who did deny Jesus. It was Peter who, in, for fear of suffering, ran the other way. Peter struggled with this issue. Here's the great thing, though. God didn't leave Peter there. God began to work on Peter's heart and change Peter so that Peter ended up embracing a life of suffering. And Peter ended up being martyred for the faith. So here we have a a Christian martyr, a man who was crucified upside down by Nero, telling us about suffering. I'd like to learn from him. He's got a lot to teach us about suffering. Incredible man who was changed by God's grace. And so Peter gives us some counsel. Here's what he does. He gives us three words of counsel this morning. When suffering comes, here they are. Don't be surprised by it. Verses 12 and 13. Don't be ashamed of it. Verses 14 through 16. And don't be confused about it. Verses 17 through 19. Don't be surprised, don't be ashamed, and don't be confused. First, when suffering comes, don't be surprised by it, but rather rejoice. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, those verses are jam-packed, but... Really, you can summarize all that he says in those verses in, in, in really three things. Suffering's not strange. Suffering is meant to test you. And suffering leads to rejoicing. That's the essence of, of those verses. That's a summary of what he's saying. First, Peter's explaining to us why Christians should not think that suffering is some strange thing. It's not. Suffering is not strange. It's normal. And if we want to live the Christian life without reservation... That is, if we want to live radical, sold-out lives for Jesus, we want to live without reservation, then we better expect some suffering. 
You know, I think one of the reasons why texts like this tend to kind of land flat on us and not really move us or affect us is because we don't really walk through this type of suffering, this persecution that Peter is addressing on a regular basis. You preach a message like this in the East to a persecuted church, say a church in India where pastors are being beaten, where they're pulling Bibles out of houses, setting them on fire in the street, where pastors' daughters are being raped, and where, where masses of people are coming in and destroying whole communities and churches and Christians. You preach a sermon like this and there are people on their faces crying and in tears before God. Thank you, God. They, they are so comforted by this word, by, by this passage. I mean, this, this passage here has got to be one of the most press, precious passages to some suffering Christians around the world. They read this, and this is their go-to section. Now, we're living in a different world. We, we're, we're, not, we're not under that type of duress. And so the tendency is for us to read this, and it just kind of lands flat on us. But people of God, let me say something to us. We don't know where we're going to be in 10 years. Do you know? Do you know what the state of America will be in 10 years? I have no idea, but I know one thing. We better be prepared for suffering and major amounts of it. And if we're not prepared, if we are ill-prepared, we will find ourselves in that situation and have no idea what to do, no idea how to respond. Times are, are changing Where are we going to be in 10, 15 years? I have no idea. But I know one thing. We better have a theology for suffering. We may not suffer like the Eastern church, like the third world church, but we better live like them. We better learn how to embrace an ethic of suffering. May God help us. Tim Keller says this. He says there's a great number of books on why does God allow evil. Tons of books like this. But they're mainly aimed at getting God off the hook with impatient Western people who believe God's job is to give them a safe life. The church in the West must mount a great new project of producing people who are prepared to endure in the face of suffering and persecution. We need to to mount a new project. Heritage Baptist Church needs to mount a new project. We need to... We need to mount this project and understand that suffering and persecution are coming our way and we need to embrace that. So I wrote this down. Suffering will come. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Well, here's the problem. Somehow Christians are still surprised by it when it comes. Aren't we? We're, we're like, whoa, oh, wait a minute. I, I not... Not this. Surely God's not calling me to do this. But why, friends, why are we surprised by it? I mean, it's all over the Bible. Paul said to Timothy, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. All. Not some. All who live a godly life will suffer. Aren't you glad the Bible is, is truthful? That it's not some fairy tale that leaves us with some false hope or some false picture of reality. No, the Bible prepares us. It, and we need to hear these kind of things because suffering is coming our way. For some of you in this room right now, suffering is here. You're living in the middle of it. And Peter says in verse 12, dear friends, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
Now, let me put a parenthesis in here before I go on. Because some people may be reading this text and you're thinking about the persecuted church and you're wondering, okay, isn't this text just about persecution? Because, you know, what about other types of suffering like losing my job or the death of a loved one or getting cancer or a broken home or something like that? Is there any application of this text to that? Well, here's what I want to say about that. While this text is mainly about persecution and suffering because you're a Christian, I hope that what you hear this morning is that God is sovereign and therefore God governs all suffering. God governs even Satan. Therefore, anything that comes into your life, anything by way of pain, hurt, or darkness, while you're walking the path of obedience is designed for your good and God's glory. Which means that this text is immensely relevant for your situation. So don't conclude that this text has no application for you because you're not being persecuted like the third world church. All right, so back to the text. Peter says, when, when suffering comes, don't be surprised. And here's why. If Jesus suffered, we should expect his followers to suffer. In verse 13, Peter says, says this. He says, we share, notice his language, share in Christ's sufferings. Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India, said this. If they persecuted him, it is inevitable that they will persecute us. This is the way the master went. Should not his servants tread it still? We should. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus taught us in Matthew 10. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So suffering in the life of a Christian is not strange. It's not a weird thing. It's not absurd. It's not meaningless. In fact, it's normal and it's purposeful. And then verse 19, it's according to God's will. That'll blow some paradigms for some people. Suffering is according to God's will. I, I, hear, I hear all these folks saying things like, well, suffering is just the devil. It has nothing to do with God. Of course it does. Of course it has everything to do with God. It's part of God's will. Even Satan, if he's the immediate cause of suffering, it's still within the broader range of God's will. So don't be surprised about it when it comes. But secondly... Suffering is used by God to test us. That's what verse 12 makes so clear. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Notice to test you. Suffering has a tendency to examine us. That's what it does. It serves that purpose. This fiery trial is, is what God uses to, to purify you. It seems that Peter here has Psalm sixty-six ten in mind. Um, he uses so much of the language there in Psalm 66.10. It seems like he's pulling this from his memory uh, or from something that he was reading in the Septuagint. But he says this. He says, Psalm 66.10 says, For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. So Peter's clearly aware of this. And the point is this. God uses suffering to refine us. He transforms us through trial. And that means when you're suffering, far from God being distant, 
and aloof from you, God is deeply involved in your life. As I said earlier, suffering is not a sign of God's absence. Suffering is a sign of God's purifying presence. And so if that's the case, how should we respond? Verse 13, we should respond this way. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. There it is. Rejoice. We are called to actually do this. It sounds absurd, but to rejoice in our sufferings. Do you do that? Are you gifted at that? Are you well-trained in rejoicing in your sufferings? This is hard. Folks, this is hard. Just get, get, get this. We are called to rejoice in our suffering. We're not to retaliate or lick our wounds in self-pity. We're not to grit and bear it like a stoic. No, we're to rejoice and be glad. And this is what Jesus taught us in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Rejoice when you're slandered for the truth. Rejoice when you're ignored at the company Christmas party because of your faith. Rejoice when you're passed over at your business for someone less competent. Rejoice when you're cut off from the in crowd because your, pro- your presence as a Christian kind of bothers them, kind of annoys them. Rejoice. Think about those words of Jesus. He says, revile and persecute when they revile and persecute you. And the idea here is that people are maligning us. They curse us and they blaspheme God. They're not just insulting us. They're actually making a mockery of our entire faith. You know, you fundamentalists, Bible-thumping, Jesus freaks, all you Christians, all you guys, you've just been programmed to believe a fairy tale. Just admit it. You are what's wrong with society. And the same hostility, the same venom that was spewed out upon Christ by an unbelieving world is vented upon us. Listen, when people around you at college or at school or at work, when they put the knife in you and twist it simply because you're a Christian, Peter says, rejoice. Your response to that is to be rejoice. He's saying, I want you to see this from another point of view. I I want you to see that the reason that you're being persecuted is because there was enough Jesus in your life that somebody thought you were worth persecuting. Rejoice in that fact. Take joy in that fact. Praise God. What an encouragement. And friends, that should bring joy to us in the midst of our pain. And, And it's a foretaste of the joy to come. So friend, if you're suffering, Peter says, go ahead and start rejoicing because someday you will rejoice forever. Let's just start the party now. <laughs> Let's get it going because we're going to do that. Well, that's Peter's first bit of, of counsel. He tells us, don't be surprised, but rather rejoice. Second thing, Peter says, don't be ashamed, but count yourselves as blessed. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. <laughs> Amazing phrase. Again, Peter is surely recalling the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people revile and persecute you. He uses that same word, blessed. How could he say that? I mean, if this isn't countercultural, I don't know what is. Because... What part of being reviled and insulted 
is a blessing. Is that a blessing for anyone? I was, I was reviled. That was a blessing. <laughs> so glad I was reviled this week. I received that as a blessing. No, it's weird for us to talk that way. It sounds strange. See, and this is exactly why the world thinks we're crazy when we talk like this. Jesus, what is Jesus? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Get, just get punched again in the face. And then turn the other cheek again. I mean, how insane is that? And then, and then the people in the world are just like, what is wrong with you Christians? What do you mean, turn the other cheek? Oh, it's a blessing when I'm reviled. Strange. You have to be a Christian to understand language like this. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute with a mind that has not been changed and transformed. It doesn't compute with a, with a non-Christian. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. And even for us as Christians, it's hard enough for us to wrap our mind around this. Blessing. I'll tell you what's wrong. Here's what's wrong. The world says, what's wrong with you Christians? Here's what's wrong. We don't belong here. We don't belong here. We are aliens and strangers. This is not our home. We live by different standards. And that's why we are unlike the world around us. We're weird. Just, just embrace that. You're going to be weird for the rest of your life by the world standards. Now, we shouldn't be unnecessarily weird. (laughs) Don't do that. But if you're living as a faithful Christian, there's a certain level of weirdness that you're just going to have. And our goal isn't to change that. Okay? Our goal is not to be unnecessarily weird. But when we are following Jesus in the path of obedience, if that makes us strange, if that makes us alien-like, too bad. That's who we are. And you need to be able to embrace that. Are we able to embrace that? That's okay for us. So Jesus uses these words, revile and persecute. And, and, and it, it's strange for us. And we've got to be able to understand that. So we shouldn't be surprised by suffering and neither should we be ashamed by it. Instead, we should rejoice in it because we are blessed. Now, at this point, some of you may be saying, okay, all right, I see in the text here that we're blessed. Question I have is how? What do you mean we're blessed? How are we blessed? What's the nature of this blessing? What kind of blessing is in view here? Well, Peter tells us in verse 14, and, and this is so precious. He says this. He says, we're blessed because, note the language, the spirit of glory and of God rest upon us. So let's spend a little bit of time here on this. Um, I did a lot of thinking and meditating on this phrase this week because it's profound. He doesn't say, notice, he doesn't say because the spirit of the glory of God? No. He says the spirit of, it actually says the spirit of the glory and of God. So he's talking about two different things here. So what does it mean? What, what does this mean? Well, I think Peter has in mind here, what he has in mind here is not the suffering itself. That's not the blessing. I suffered. I'm blessed. No. It's not the suffering itself, nor is it the potential for growth and godliness. In other words, suffering helps you grow, right? Because it tests you, it challenges you. 
So he doesn't have the suffering in mind. He doesn't have the potential for growth and godliness in mind, but rather the blessing is the very presence of God himself. He says, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. And then you know what he does? He quotes verbatim Isaiah 11 two. Just extracts it. Now, if you know anything about Isaiah 11 and 2, that should be shocking because Isaiah 11 and 2 is a messianic prophecy. Here's what Isaiah 11 2 says. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, meaning Jesus, on the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Peter just takes that thing that was applied for Jesus, that was meant for Jesus. Jesus was the prophetic fulfillment of that. And he says, I'm putting that on suffering Christians. That applies universally, one for one, for all suffering Christians. Amazing how he uses Isaiah 11 and 2. And that's significant. This is very significant because Christ is the one that the Spirit rests upon. But listen, since we are in union with Christ, Peter applies these words to the suffering Christian. What he's saying is this, the Spirit of the Lord, which was poured out on the Messiah, who suffered for our redemption, will also be poured out on us when we suffer for Christ. Peter is applying the promise of Isaiah 11:2 to all suffering Christians. What Peter is saying is that there is a new dimension of the Holy Spirit's presence that comes into the life of a Christian when he or she humbly submits to suffering for the name of Christ. He's saying that there's an experience of the Holy Spirit, an anointing, an extraordinary presence and power that comes upon a Christian when he is in the midst of suffering. This is beautiful. What's the point of that? Why why would you need an extraordinary presence of the Holy Spirit and anointing and power to come upon you in the midst of suffering? why Why would you need this? Why would a person need all that power and help of the Holy Spirit? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever stopped and, and, and asked yourself this question? Have you ever asked yourself this question? What would I do if, if a radical Muslim or a radical Hindu or a radical uh, religious person came and stuck a knife to my neck and said, I will cut your neck off unless you deny Jesus right here? What would you do if somebody grabbed your wife or your husband and held a gun to their head and said, unless you deny Jesus, I pull the trigger? Have you ever asked that question? I've asked it. And it's scary to ask a question like that because you begin to wonder, would I have the strength? Would I have the resolve to say no? Would I stand for Jesus when my life was on the line or when my wife's life was on the line? And so here's the point. I think the, 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 the meaning here is that the purpose of this extraordinary empowering of the spirit is to give us strength to endure in the midst of suffering. You may not have that grace right now. If I grab one of you right now and and we test you at that level, you may not have that grace. But in, in 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 a mock trial, if we just kind of pretended. But if you were literally on the other side of the world and that happened to you, then all of a sudden you would receive that grace because God's spirit would come in power upon you and give you the grace to go through that. 
So this, this is an amazing phrase here when he says, the spirit of the Lord, which is the, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon you. The spirit of glory and of God. This is precious. Believers who suffer are blessed because they're enjoying God's favor and they're tasting even now the wonder of the glory to come. That's what he means by glory. The glory and of God is that someday when Jesus comes back, his glory will be revealed and they're tasting that now. Suffering Christians are tasting that now. A bit of what it means to experience that glory while they're experiencing the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in an intensified fashion. Now, look, I've seen this in India. Um, I've seen suffering Christians. I've seen the faces of pastors and people in India who have suffered incredible amounts of trial and persecution in their life. And there's almost a shine to them. You can discernibly see it on their face. The spirit of God resting upon them, his influence upon them. And Peter says to us that that's the blessing you and I can expect if God calls us to suffer and bear reproach for Jesus. Isn't that awesome? It's an, it's an amazing thing. Now, I've got to warn you. If you suffer for the wrong reasons, okay, verse 15, there's no such blessing for you. It's an interesting Peter kind of sandwiches this. Persecuted Christians and then people that are doing foolish things. And then he goes back to suffering Christians. So right in the middle here, verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. The point is, much of our suffering is our own fault. (laughs) In other words, if you behave wrongly, you're inviting suffering into your life. Peter's point is simple. Make sure that your suffering isn't the result of your own foolish choices, right? I mean, this happens when, when some people suffer, they want us to believe that they're suffering for some other reason than their own sinful choices. We've seen it. We've heard all the excuses for sympathy from people. Well, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of suffering for the Lord right now. And, and, you know, things are just really tough for me. And, you know, things have, you know, life's really hard. And, and I'm, I'm just really going through it because, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. No. No, 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 no. The reality is you just did some really dumb things. Let's put that in the consequences for sin category. All right. That's not godly suffering. That's not what Peter has in view. You know what that is? That's you making a rod for your own back. There is a big difference there. And, And there's no promise that the blessing of God's spirit resting upon you in such an instance And this is a very important lesson for us. And and we need to hear this because I think it could be that the lion's share of our suffering actually has to do with our foolish choices. It's certainly here in the West. And this is very practical. Listen up. If, If you eat too much consistently and you suffer from health problems or you eat poorly too much consistently and you suffer from heart problems or health problems, you're inviting suffering. If, if you keep smoking like that, you may not get lung cancer, but you're certainly asking for it. 
If you don't take care of your family, if you neglect your working obligations, if you keep using those drugs recreationally, if you commit crimes, no matter how petty, just little stealing here and there, if you drink too much, if you keep feeding that inappropriate emotional relationship at the office, guess what? Listen up. You're inviting suffering into your life. This is how the world works. This is what happens. And Peter gives us a few examples in verse 15. Look at those categories. Now, I know you're over there checking off the list. Murderer, no. Thief, no. Criminal, no. Meddler? (laughs) What's that doing there? That's weird. Meddler. Meddling? I mean, really? Meddling is when you think you have the right to interfere or concern yourself with the affairs of others. It it covers a whole range of things. Uh, They may not be outward sins or criminal acts. Meddling is just busying yourself in the affairs of others in uninvited ways. That's, That's in the Bible. Think about this. This is interesting. And Peter says, if you're doing that, if you're just kind of annoying people by doing that, by kind of getting in their business all the time, and you're suffering, that's your fault. That, that might be why you're suffering. Don't, don't be involved in suffering that comes as a result of unwise and improper interference in people's lives. Just snooping around. Just gossipy, snooping around. Got to check out the latest. Got to figure out what's going on with those people and what they're doing and what they're watching. And I mean, it's just, anyway, I just think it's interesting that Peter adds that here at the end of this list. But the point is, many of us have suffered and are still suffering from the sinful choices that we have made when we were young. And, and kids, kids, listen, this is why your parents constantly say things like this. It's why they say, I did all that. <laughs> I, I spent a good portion of my life in those places doing those things. I've had enough of that. And it doesn't make you happy. It only makes you miserable. Uh, uh, a moment of pleasure and months of pain and devastation and despair left in its path. You heard mom and dad say that, haven't you? I can tell you the same thing. It's true. Friends, listen, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Always. Kids, listen, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It never gives you what you think it's going to give you. Reebok says life is short, play hard. The Bible says, life is short, stop playing. Parents, am I right? Am I right? Do our kids need to hear this? Yes. Let's encourage them. Listen, and to all of us, listen, let's do something with our life that matters. Do something today, tomorrow, that a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now will make a difference. Because someday we're all going to stand before God. Peter says in verse 5 of this same chapter, he says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge. You think about that? Ready to judge. God's not like, I got to kind of get ready for this big judgment day coming up. He's like, I'm ready. I'm ready right now. I, I, I don't have to get ready. I don't have to prepare myself for judgment. I am ready right now to judge the living and the dead. And every person in this room and every person in this city and every person in this country and in, in this world will stand before God someday. 
And God is ready to judge the living and the dead. And we will all stand before God and give an account to this holy God and give a speech and stand before him. And that day is marked and it's coming and it's coming quickly. And so if you don't know Jesus this morning, I invite you to come. I invite you to surrender to him, to bow your knee to Christ and to give your life to him today. Why, why would you wait? This is serious business. This is not just some preacher up here saying, oh, the judgment's coming. Hell's coming. This is real. Don't make a mockery of this. This is serious. This really is going to happen. God created the universe. He made us. We're accountable before him. So we must be ready. So here's the question then for us. Why are you suffering today if you're suffering? Peter says there's a suffering that comes our way because of our faithfulness. And then there's a suffering that comes our way because of foolishness and sin. And he says, don't be involved in the latter. If if you're suffering because you're involved in foolishness and sin and you're making poor choices, don't be involved in that. Verse 16. But, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. That means if you're called, if you're, in the early church, the word Christian, this is only the third time it occurs in the whole New Testament, the word Christian. And actually, when it's referenced in the New Testament, it's typically referenced by non-Christians. It was kind of a derogatory term, Christian. So he says here, like some English translations put it in quotation marks, and that's good because the point is, he said, if you're suffering as a Christian, as one of those people, all right, then let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in Christ's name, in his name. You bear his name. So this is Peter's essential guide to suffering. And he's saying, okay, when suffering comes, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Secondly, when suffering comes, don't be ashamed, but glorify God and consider yourselves blessed because the spirit of God rests upon you. And then third, his last piece of counsel is this. Don't be confused by it. Verses 17 through 19. When we undergo suffering as a Christian, we can become confused. It happens all the time. Suffering Christians are confused. They're tempted to think maybe God doesn't care for them. Maybe God has forgotten me. Maybe he doesn't love me anymore. And, but Peter doesn't want us to be confused about this. Verse 17, he says, For it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, these could be confusing verses, so let me just say a word about this. The judgment that Peter says begins with us, with Christians, is not a judgment unto condemnation. It's a judgment unto salvation. Peter's not saying that believers are going to stand before God and suffer the penalty of their sin. No, he's saying that for believers, verse 18, he says actually the righteous in verse 18 are saved. So salvation is in view for them. In fact, verse 18 is probably better translated. And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, it's a a better way to say it than scarcely saved. If a righteous person is saved with difficulty, the point is God's method of bringing God's people to their final inheritance is through hard trials and suffering. That's the point. His point is, if it's hard for Christians to make it through life, what's going to happen to the ungodly and the sinner? I mean, if, if it's hard for a Christian to make it, and they will, all of them, but if it's hard, what's going to happen to the wicked? 
I'll tell you what's going to happen. They will not escape the severity of God's justice. They won't make it. None of them. But friends, for us, the judgment of God which comes upon us is to test us, to refine us, not to condemn us. It's an expression of his love and not his wrath. And it's why Peter said in chapter 1, we may have to suffer various tests so that the genuineness, remember that language, of our faith will result in praise and glory. The point is this. These purifying trials in your life make you more like Jesus. We're being pruned and refined. The idea is that God is refining his people through, pot, through, through fire. And this is what Peter meant by the fiery trial there in verse 12. God is like the refiner who puts us like pieces of cold metal into his fire to melt us and to take away all the impurities of sin and rebellion and hard-heartedness of our lives so that when God looks at us, he may see his own reflection in the life of his people. It's beautiful imagery. God is expressing his great commitment to us. And think about it. Jesus will have no other bride presented before God than a bride that is virgin pure. A bride that has been refined by fire. A bride from, from which every impurity has been cleansed. And so our whole Christian pilgrimage in different ways for different people at different times is made up of God working to refine us and present us faultless before his face in glory. That's why you're enduring suffering. So friends, we must walk through the fire. You have to walk through fire. Suffering is part of your discipleship. Because everything that is unfit for the Savior and for our groom must be refined away. And then on that day, Jesus will present us, it says in Ephesians, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And that means that when you're suffering, that suffering is not wasted. It is accomplishing a great and deep and abiding purposes. So friends, do not be confused about your suffering. Do not be confused. Instead, verse 19, entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, I've got to ask you this question as we close. Are we prepared to do this? As families, as individuals, as a church, are we prepared to entrust ourselves to God in the midst of suffering? Are we willing to do as Jesus did and entrust ourselves completely to our faithful God until the last day? Jesus, think about Jesus. He committed himself to the will of God. He believed. He trusted that the creator was faithful. He continued in the hard path laid out for him, even the path that led to the cross, death on the cross. None of us want to suffer. Let's admit that. None of us want to suffer. Even Jesus struggled with the thought of it. But in that garden of tears... We must commit ourselves to our faithful creator and do good. Are you willing to do that? I trust that that's your resolve this morning. And if it is, then let's go on and let's bear the cross. Because on the other side, there is life forevermore. Let me close with an example of one who lived this text. He just lived it. And I love this story. Horatio Spafford. Some of you know who Horatio Spafford is, but he was a rich and successful lawyer in the 1860s Chicago. And he and his wife, Anna, were also well known for their strong friendship with the famous preacher D.L. Moody. 
1870, however, tragedy began to strike. The Spaffords' only son was killed by scarlet fever at the age of four. Only son. I think about my little son Judah. Can't imagine him dying from any illness. His son was killed. Their son was killed at the age of four. He died from scarlet fever. And a year later, listen to this, amazing suffering. A year later, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed every single one of their real estate investments that were on the lake, on the shore of Lake Michigan. So now they got a dead son. All their real estate investments are destroyed by fire. And aware of the toil that these disasters had taken on the family, Horatio decided to take his wife and four daughters on a holiday to England in late 1873, both to, to give them rest and to help D.L. Moody with one of his evangelistic campaigns. But just before they set sail across the Atlantic on a French ship, the French ship called the Viduava, a last-minute business development forced Horatio to delay. Not wanting to ruin the family's vacation, he sent them along. Spafford persuaded his family to go, and he would follow along soon. Nine days later, he received a telegram from his wife in Wales. It read this, saved alone. On November 2nd, 1873, the Viduava had collided with an English ship. It sank in only 12 minutes, claiming the lives of 226 people. Anna Spafford had stood bravely on the deck with her daughters, Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanita, clinging desperately to her. Her last memory was her baby being torn violently from her arms by the force of the waters. Anna miraculously was saved by a plank which floated underneath her unconscious body and propped her up. But the rest of her children drowned. Upon hearing that terrible news, Horatio boarded the next ship out to join his bereaved wife. And during the voyage, while passing over the place where his family's ship had gone down, where his daughters had all drowned and died, Horatio penned the lyrics of this great hymn we're about to sing. This song reveals a supernatural peace that can only come from one place, the cross of Jesus Christ. When suffering came, he entrusted his soul to God. It is well with my soul. Let's stand and sing.